Welcome back to a, a new episode. Last time we were here, we listened to episode 3, People vs. Flores, weeks 1 and 2. And then we listened to episode 4, People vs. Flores, weeks 3. And the, both of them were recapping. One of them was recapping. Episode 3 was recapping. Um, July 18th and the week of the 20th, July 25th in the courthouse. And then um, we... In episode four, week three, um, <clears throat> Chris was recapping the week of August first in the courthouse. But today we are listening to weeks four and five, which he recaps the weeks of August eighth and the weeks of August fifteenth in the courthouse. And also, we're listening to week six, which is he he recaps. Chris recaps. Episode, mm-hmm. so he recaps August twenty second, the week of August twenty second, in the courthouse. Hope you guys enjoy and keep your ears peeled. This time, not your eyes, your ears. A special bonus series of the Your Own Backyard podcast titled "People." Versus Flores, a weekly recap of the murder trial of Paul and Ruben Flores. Since filming and audio recording aren't currently allowed inside the courtroom, these episodes will recount handwritten notes taken by host Chris Lambert, breaking from our typical documentary format in an effort to get updates out as regularly and succinctly as possible. These recaps will likely contain subject matter that may be graphic and disturbing to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. began with the testimony of Tim, one of the last three people to see Kristen Smart alive. On May 24, 1996, Tim said he attended a party at 135 Crandall Way, a party he helped to organize to celebrate the shared birthdays of his friends Ryan and Tom. Tim estimated he arrived at the Crandall house around 7 p.m. that night, when only about 20 people were present. For the first 40 minutes of court, Tim helped the prosecution establish a general layout of the house and yard, drawing on recent photos to show what the house looked like back in 1996. The Crandall house is small, about a thousand square feet if you don't include the garage, which was converted into a bedroom sometime later. A few steps lead up from the driveway onto a small concrete porch where the front door is located. Inside, the living room in 1996 was the majority of the floor space, with a pool table just as you walk in, and a makeshift bar in a back corner near the kitchen, 
which was cordoned off with a dirty gray curtain. In the kitchen, a side door leads to the backyard. Tim described the house as, quote, college decorated, with a Budweiser sign alongside stolen street signs on the walls. Tim testified that he first noticed Paul Flores present at the party around 9.30 p.m., playing pool. At one point, Tim said he heard a thud and looked over to see that Kristen Smart and Paul Flores had fallen to the ground together near the curtain area that separated the kitchen from the hallway. All of this testimony, while it can feel slow and repetitive, is critical to establishing for the jury why investigators honed in on Paul Flores during those initial days. In his interview with Cal Poly Police and a follow-up with DA investigators, Paul denied that he had any contact with Kristen at the party, including this fall in the hallway, which he was asked about directly. Several witnesses have now testified to seeing the two of them fall to the floor together, as well as seeing them speaking near the bar area. Paul also told investigators that he had no interest in Kristen at the party and wasn't attracted to her, while others present have recounted that Paul was watching Kristen throughout the night and on at least two occasions asked other partygoers about her specifically, commenting that she was attractive. Another key piece from Tim's testimony is his recollection of Kristen's state of intoxication and her ability to walk, which differs substantially from Paul's. Tim testified that at the end of the party, he loaded up his green Ford Taurus with five or six drunk people who needed a ride home and gave his keys to a friend to drive them. As the car drove away, Tim said he noticed Cheryl, who also didn't have a ride home, so he offered to walk her back to her dorm. Not long after, Tim said he noticed Kristen Smart lying on the lawn of the house next door and told her she needed to leave. Tim said when he approached her, he noticed goose pimples on her skin, and Kristen said, quote, I'm cold. I want to go home. Tim said when he helped Kristen stand, she put her arm around his neck, and he put an arm around her waist to support her. He said he then told Cheryl that they needed to help Kristen get back to her dorm, too. After walking up the sidewalk to the opposite end of the lawn, Tim said Paul Flores came out of a dark walkway along the side of the house and offered to help them walk Kristen. Much of the cross-examination focused on this moment, which Deputy DA Christopher Pavrell characterized as Paul suddenly coming out of the shadows and joining the group uninvited, while defense attorney Robert Sanger suggested that Paul could have been walking around with a group of students from another party across the street when he joined their group. No one else who has testified so far had any recollection of another party taking place across the street at the same time, and Cheryl, who was present when Paul joined the group, also testified that Paul came out alone from a dark area on the side of the Crandall house. Sanger suggested that Tim never said that Paul came out from the side of the house until his testimony at the preliminary hearing last year. But Tim insisted, quote, We were walking away from the house, and Paul came from off to the left towards me. That's the only place he could have been coming from. Tim said the four of them walked up Crandall Way and turned right onto Campus Way, before Cheryl told him that he didn't need to go the rest of the way with them, since he was only escorting her so she didn't have to walk alone. Tim said Paul told him, I got her from here, and he handed off Kristen to him behind the health center.
Tim testified, quote, she was just like a sack of potatoes. I could feel her weight on my shoulders. I was definitely keeping her up. Tim said he looked back before he left to make sure that Paul could actually support Kristen as they walked, confirming that he was definitely concerned about Kristen's stability. Quote, she was using me as her crutch. I was her crutch to get her home. I was her way of getting back to the dorms. This aligns with Cheryl's testimony regarding Kristen's ability to walk on her own, both of which differ from Paul's statements to police, that Kristen was walking without help and managed to walk uphill to Muir Hall alone once he separated from her. It's also interesting that Tim still recalls the details of that night so vividly. As he explained to Pavrel, quote, I've had to relive that night for 26 years. I've had time to think about it. I was there with close friends. My future spouse was at that party. Everything that happened at that party led us to sitting in this courtroom. Compare that to Paul's memory of the night, who, although he was first contacted by police on the same day as Tim, a few days later could not recall several general details, including what he was wearing. Before Tim left the stand at noon, a juror submitted a question. Was Kristen's speech slurred and hard to understand? Tim answered, quote, It was slurred and quiet. She sounded like a person who just wanted to be sleeping. After the lunch break, Pavrel called Jeremy to the stand. In May of 1996, Jeremy was an Arroyo Grande high school senior who hung out with Paul Flores whenever he came home from Cal Poly. Jeremy testified that on Sunday, May 26th, he hung out with Paul sometime in the afternoon and noticed bruising under his right eye, which Paul told him he just woke up with. The following day, Monday, May 27th, was Memorial Day. Jeremy testified that he played a basketball game with Paul and two other people that afternoon. This is the basketball game Paul first claimed to investigators that his black eye originated from, though Jeremy was clear that he first noticed it the day before that game. On cross-examination, Sanger asked Jeremy if he told the detective on July 8, 1996, that he didn't actually see any marks on Paul's face. Jeremy reiterated, quote, I saw the black eye on Sunday the 26th. Sanger then read from a report where Jeremy apparently said he didn't see a black eye or play basketball with Paul until the following weekend. Jeremy had no memory of making this statement, and it's unclear whether an investigator took down the dates wrong or whether Jeremy was confused about the dates in the first place. On redirect, Pavrel pointed out that Monday, June 3rd, was not a holiday, and Jeremy would have been in school on that day. Also, it's undisputed that Paul Flores had a black eye on Monday, May 27th, because there's a photo of him with it taken by the Arroyo Grande Police Department. And Paul himself claimed to have gotten it in his truck late Sunday night or early Monday morning. So it's unclear why Sanger was focused on this detail, except to challenge Jeremy's recollection. The whole issue got so confusing that Pavrel called DA investigator J.T. Camp to the stand to clarify which reports were shown to Jeremy when they spoke to him in 2021. Camp said he met with Jeremy on June 8, 2021, and let him review a report from DA investigator Hanley 
from June of 1996, two from Detective Stewart from July and September of 1996, one from Detective Tate from September 1996, and one from Private Investigator Addison from November of 1997. Monday's last witness was Mike Kennedy, Cal Poly's lead detective on the Kristen Smart case. Kennedy testified that he arrived to work on Tuesday, May 28th, to find that a report had been filed regarding a student who failed to return to her residence hall over Memorial Day weekend. Kennedy said he immediately started to seek out and interview people who had attended the Crandall party on Friday, May 24th. Paul Flores was the last person he spoke to that day. In his report, Kennedy noted that Paul was, quote, very nervous, and he could see his heart beating through his T-shirt. Kennedy also noted that Paul had an injury on his face, which he described as, quote, an arc under his right eye, darker than the surrounding skin. When he asked about the bruise, Kennedy said Paul told him he got it playing basketball over the weekend. Paul told Kennedy during that first conversation that he separated from Kristen near the driveway behind Sequoia Hall and went back to his dorm room where he went to bed before taking a shower around 5 a.m. He also said that the only physical contact he had with Kristen that night was when he hugged her twice during the walk home to keep her warm. Kennedy interviewed Paul again two days later at the campus police station. Kennedy noted on that occasion that bruising was still visible under Paul's right eye, and his partner, Officer Robert Cudworth, noticed that Paul also had scratches on his knees. Paul said he got the scratches from the same basketball game as his black eye. During this interview, Paul told Kennedy that he did not find Kristen Smart attractive, and he denied asking Cheryl for a kiss before separating from her at the crosswalk of Perimeter and Grand something Kennedy learned about from his interview with Cheryl. Kennedy testified that at the end of his May 30th interview with Paul, he asked him to do two things. One was to consult a TV guide, which Paul said would help him remember what he was watching on TV before he left to walk to the Crandall party Friday night. Pivrell asked Kennedy to explain what a TV guide was for the jury. Kennedy's second request for Paul was to find a student that he said saw him when he returned to Santa Lucia Hall that morning and provide police with that student's name. Kennedy testified that Paul never followed up with either request. Sanger made what he called a constitutional objection to this line of questioning, citing Griffin v. California, a case where the Supreme Court ruled that a defendant's declining to testify could not be considered by a jury as evidence of their guilt, presumably implying that Paul's failure to provide the police with a TV guide and an alibi witness was the same as taking the Fifth Amendment. Judge O'Keefe overruled this objection. On cross-exam, Sanger asked Kennedy where he sat when he first spoke to Paul in his dorm room. This is likely preparing for the testimony of cadaver dog handlers, where Sanger has strongly implied that the scent of death could have been left on Paul's mattress by one of the police officers who was in his room before the search. Kennedy, however, testified that he and Paul were both standing while he was in the dorm room. 
The day ended at 4.24 p.m., with Mike Kennedy still on the stand, with cross-examination scheduled to resume at 10.30 a.m. on Tuesday, August 9th. Instead, we assembled in the courtroom Tuesday morning, only to be told that a juror was unable to attend that day, and rather than subbing in another alternate, Judge O'Keefe had decided to postpone the proceeding for one day. When we reconvened on Wednesday morning, Judge O'Keefe announced that the juror was unable to return, so an alternate was sworn in on Paul's jury. Defense attorney Robert Sanger resumed his cross-examination of Cal Poly detective Mike Kennedy, asking if Paul was cooperative and polite the first time he spoke with him. Kennedy said he was. Defense attorney Harold Misick had no questions for Kennedy, and after only 10 minutes in the courtroom, the judge called a 30-minute break with Kennedy still on the stand. After the break, Detective Kennedy walked through a series of items he collected from Kristen Smart's dorm room during his investigation. On the projector, Pavrel published photos of Kristen's social security card, a Citibank Visa card, Kristen's Stinner Glen identification card, a Wells Fargo transaction record showing a balance of $94.30, and a Wells Fargo checkbook. Another sheet, labeled How to Rent a Home or Apartment, contained Kristen's handwritten notes in the margins. Call Monday. Find out how much for housing. Go to DSS. Get one more form, plus get signatures. Deputy DA Pavrel then asked permission to play an audio recording for the jury, but Sanger asked for a sidebar first. After three minutes, all parties returned to the courtroom, and Judge O'Keefe called for another break. After the break, Pavrel played a cassette tape recording of Detective Kennedy's May 30th interview with Paul Flores. The tape ran for half an hour, but was edited to omit a section where Kennedy tells Paul that several students he's interviewed reported that they knew Paul around campus as Chester the Molester. Paul sounds shocked and insists he's never heard that nickname before. This section was likely omitted to satisfy Sanger's motion that Paul not be referred to by any derogatory names in front of the jury. On cross-exam, Sanger questioned Kennedy about what steps were taken to preserve the crime scene until the sheriff's department was called in. Kennedy said that after Paul Flores moved out on June 8th, the door lock was changed and crime scene tape was placed on the door. Nobody entered the room after that except for Kennedy himself until Sheriff's Deputy Rick Newfeld showed up to inspect the room on June 24th. Defense Attorney Harold Misick asked Kennedy about various sightings of Kristen reported over the summer of 1996 from Taco Bells in Coalinga, Modesto, and Clovis. Kennedy said he recalled receiving those tips along with 75 to 80 other reported sightings that summer, scattered from Disneyland to Northern California, but none of them led to finding Kristen. Kennedy was excused at 3.14 p.m. with just over an hour left of the court day, and Lieutenant Robert Cudworth was called to the stand. Cudworth, who now works for the San Luis Obispo Police Department, had been working as a Cal Poly police officer for just eight weeks when he took the missing person report from Kristen Smart's dorm mates on Tuesday, May 28, 1996. 
He noted in that report that Kristen's belongings, including her clothing, toiletries, identification card, and backpack were left on her side of room 120 in Mirror Hall. Cudworth then located and interviewed five students, including Cheryl and Tim, before he eventually made contact with Paul Flores that afternoon while he was working his shift at the campus grocery store. Paul told Cudworth that he saw Kristen Smart at the Crandall party, but didn't talk to her, stating he, quote, did not want to get together with her. Cross-examination of Cudworth was brief, with Sanger asking if Paul was cooperative and polite when he first interviewed him. Cudworth said he was. Defense attorney Harold Misick had no questions for Cudworth. A juror submitted a question. What was Paul's demeanor during your first conversation with him? Cudworth said Paul was cooperative and there were, quote, no red flags at that time. Cudworth was excused at 4.14 p.m., and retired San Luis Obispo Sheriff's Deputy Rick Newfeld was called to the stand. On June 24, 1996, Newfeld was assigned to process Paul's vacated dorm room in Santa Lucia Hall for trace evidence, including hairs, fibers, blood, semen, and fingerprints. Cal Poly's custodial crew had already cleaned the room after Paul moved out. On June 29th, Newfeld was asked to return to the room to collect a mattress and mattress cover from Paul's dorm room. Pavrel asked Newfeld why he was called to return on that date, but Sanger objected that the question called for hearsay and the judge sustained. Newfeld was asked to return to the stand on Friday morning, and Ruben Flores's jurors were instructed that they would not be attending Thursday's proceeding and were told not to speculate on what occurred when they were not in court. Thursday morning, only Paul's jury assembled in the courtroom, leaving half of the audience seating empty. Ruben Flores and his defense attorney, Harold Misick, were also absent. Pavrel called Bill Hanley to the stand at 10.46 a.m. Hanley, who had surgery on a vocal cord several years back, spoke just above a whisper. In 1996, Hanley was a senior investigator with the San Luis Obispo District Attorney's Office. On Friday, May 31, 1996, he was contacted by Cal Poly Police and asked to assist with a missing person investigation. After a briefing, Hanley and his partner, Larry Hobson, called Paul Flores's dorm room and asked him to meet them at the Cal Poly Police Station. Because the station was unusually busy and noisy that day, Hanley and Hobson conducted an interview with Paul in their car, with Paul sitting in the passenger seat. Paul told them he played pool in Santa Lucia Hall on the evening of Friday, May 24th, before going to his room and drinking two beers alone. After drinking, Paul said he started walking to his sister's house around 9.30 p.m. with a bottle of Mickey's in his pocket when he noticed a party on Crandall Way and decided to stop. Paul told Hanley he had no contact at all with Kristen Smart during the party, except when she walked up to him and told him her name was Roxy. Paul said he was not attracted to Kristen and didn't like those type of girls. Hanley said Paul told him that after the party ran out of beer around 2.30 a.m., he saw a girl from his statistics class standing with Kristen, referring to Cheryl, 
and decided to walk back to the dorms with them. Paul did not mention Tim, did not mention that Kristen was having trouble walking or that he was helping her walk, and did not say how he learned that the girls were walking back to the dorms. Paul told Hanley that he couldn't remember having any conversation at all during their walk back to the campus, but he did say that he rubbed Kristen's arms several times, which he volunteered without being asked, was not sexual in nature at all. Paul said that when Cheryl turned right on Grand, the only thing he said to her was goodbye, after which he, quote, just went to his dorm room. When asked why he didn't make sure Kristen got back to her dorm room, Paul said, quote, I didn't even think about it. Paul told Hanley he laid in his bed for a while and then went to the communal dorm bathroom after vomiting in his mouth. After returning to bed, Paul said he woke up again sometime later and took a shower because he still had a bad taste in his mouth. Paul told Hanley that on Saturday, May 25th, he went to dinner with his friend Javier and then went to the movies. Pavrel asked Hanley what Paul told him he did from Saturday morning until Saturday evening when he went to dinner. Hanley answered, he didn't. Hanley said he asked Paul on May 31st what he believed could have happened to Kristen. Paul said he believed she went off with somebody and he believed she was dead. At this statement, a juror seated in the back corner of the courtroom cocked an eyebrow and exaggeratedly twisted his neck to look over at Paul. Hanley said that during his investigation, nobody but Paul Flores suggested that they believed Kristen was dead. Hanley testified that after following up with a number of other people, he interviewed Paul a second time on June 19th to confront him about, quote, inconsistencies and falsehoods in his story. That interview was recorded on video at the Arroyo Grande Police Department. This video has never been released to the public, and there's currently nowhere to view it. Hanley says that during his May 31st interview, Paul had agreed to take a polygraph. During his second interview on June 19th, Paul said he was not going to take a polygraph, and that his parents had, quote, told me not to talk to you guys. During the interview, Paul admitted that he lied when he said he got his black eye during a basketball game, but described it as a fib and a little white lie. He said he got the black eye from hitting it on his steering wheel while removing the stereo system in his Ford Ranger because he was planning to sell it. Only 48 minutes of the tape was played because after that point, Paul asks if he's allowed to leave, but is told to wait until his dad gets there to pick him up. During the preliminary hearing, the defense sought to throw out the entire interview on the grounds that it was a violation of Paul's Miranda rights. Judge Craig Van Royen ruled that up to the point that Paul asked to leave, his rights had not been violated, and that a reasonable person would not assume they were not free to leave, based on the circumstances. After the first portion of the tape ended, Sanger cross-examined Hanley, repeatedly referring to Paul as a 19-year-old kid, which led to a heated exchange with Pavrel, who eventually exclaimed, quote, a 19-year-old is an adult. When Sanger finally rephrased, his question was even more confusing. Quote, when young adults ask other young adults how they got their black eye, 
they usually just make something up rather than say I fell or something. Pavrel objected that the question called for speculation, and the judge sustained. Hanley was excused at 4.20 p.m. On Friday morning, both juries returned to the courtroom, where defense attorney Robert Sanger resumed his cross-examination of slow sheriff's deputy Rick Newfeld from Wednesday. In the first hour, four sidebars were called, with Sanger attempting to ask questions about proper preservation of a crime scene, volunteering several hypothetical scenarios which Pavrel objected to as improper. On redirect, Pavrel asked Newfeld why he cut off a corner of Paul's mattress for lab testing. Newfeld answered, I was informed that a cadaver dog had alerted on that location. Sanger objected that this was hearsay, and Judge O'Keefe instructed the jury not to consider the statement as fact. All of this ended with very little new information, and ultimately only clarified this timeline. On June 24, 1996, Newfeld first visited Paul's dorm room to dust for fingerprints and search for trace evidence. Five days later on the 29th, Newfeld returned to collect Paul's mattress and mattress cover after four cadaver dogs alerted. Two days after that, Newfeld visited the sheriff's crime lab and cut off two corners of Paul's mattress for testing, one where the cadaver dogs alerted, and the opposite end as a control. Newfeld was excused at 11.14 a.m. Pavrel then called Jana to the stand. On May 24, 1996, Jana traveled to San Luis Obispo from Ohio to visit her friend Crystal at Cal Poly. Crystal introduced Jana to her roommate, Kristen Smart, before they left to go to a sorority event that evening. Jana said after the event ended, she and Crystal returned to Mirror Hall Room 120 around midnight. Crystal then left to spend the night in her boyfriend Dustin's dorm room in Fremont Hall, and Jana slept on Crystal's vacant bed. Jana recalled a significant pile of clothing was on top of Kristen's smarts bed. Around 3 a.m., Jana said she woke up to someone knocking on the window. Jana recognized the person knocking as Crystal's boyfriend's roommate, Ted. She said Ted asked her to come outside to smoke a cigarette with him, so she met him outside, where they smoked and talked for about 15 minutes, just outside the south side entrance of Mir Hall, the door closest to Crystal and Kristen's room. She said that during those 15 minutes, they didn't see anyone else in the vicinity. Jana said that Ted wanted a place to sleep for the night, since Crystal and Dustin were staying together in his room. Jana said she invited Ted inside and allowed him to sleep on the floor of room 120. The pile of clothing was still on Kristen's bed. Jana said she woke up around 9 a.m. Saturday morning and found that Ted had gotten onto the bed with her on top of the blanket. She said between midnight when she got to the room and 9 a.m. when she woke up, nobody but Ted knocked on the door or window. On cross-examination, Sanger asked Jana, You really didn't like Ted, did you? You described him as angry, defensive, and mean. Jana laughed at the question. Quote, he had a sarcastic personality. 
Sanger said he had some questions he'd like to ask about what occurred in bed between Jana and Ted, but Pavrell objected on 402 grounds. Judge O'Keefe called a sidebar, and after five minutes, Sanger started a new line of questioning, asking if Jana would have noticed if Kristen had opened the room door without turning on the lights. Jana said she didn't know if she would have noticed. Jana was dismissed at 11.50 a.m. After lunch, Pavrell called Karen to the stand. Karen lived in Arroyo Grande in 1996 and was the mother of Paul's friend, Doug. On the day her son graduated from Arroyo Grande High School in June of 1996, friends held a small after-party at Karen's apartment. Paul Flores was in attendance. During the party, Karen said she was trying out her new video camera, which she had just purchased, and messing around with her son's friends. Pavrell played the minute-long tape for the jurors. In the video, Karen is heard teasing a person named Brian. Quote, hey, Bri-Bri, what's up? Hey, I didn't think they were going to call your name today. Brian joked that he was also surprised he managed to graduate. Karen then turns the camera to Paul Flores, who's sitting alone at a table wearing a white t-shirt and a baseball cap. Quote, what about you, Paul? Are we going to see you walk at Cal Poly in four years? Paul laughs, no way. An unseen male responds, maybe walk into court. Karen then asks, quote, hey, what do you know about that missing girl? What'd you do with her, Paul? Paul looks down at the table seriously and doesn't respond. Karen said Paul's demeanor changed after this exchange, and he didn't talk to her again after that. On cross-exam, Sanger asked Karen if she was aware of how many times Paul Flores had been asked that question. She said she was not. Defense attorney Harold Misick asked, quote, You were asking silly, sarcastic questions, expecting silly, sarcastic answers, right? Karen answered, Most likely. Karen was excused at 1.45 p.m. Pavrell then called DA investigator J.T. Camp to the stand and published Paul Flores's partial dorm phone records, showing a phone call was placed to his sister Irma Linda's house at 8.59 p.m. on Friday, May 24, 1996. Paul told investigators that he did not call his sister before leaving his dorm room that night. The next call from Paul Flores' dorm phone was not made until Sunday, May 26th at 9.47 a.m. to Ruben Flores' house. Pavrel then published a Google Earth view of the back of Santa Lucia Hall showing a small maintenance parking lot and asked Camp to circle the window of Paul Flores' dorm room. Pavrel handed Camp a stack of photos and asked him to identify them. Camp said they were photos he took of the window of Paul Flores' dorm room the previous weekend. Pavrell asked Camp to explain how the windows of the red brick dorms open. Sanger objected that the question was irrelevant, but the judge overruled him. Camp explained that one of the window panes slides open, and the screen, which is hinged at the top, can be pushed outward and lifted open from the inside. This window leads directly to the small maintenance parking lot. Camp said that when he was a Cal Poly student from 1991 to 1995, the windows opened the same way.
Camp said he measured the window at 69 and a half inches wide by 46 inches high. On cross-examination, Sanger asked Camp about the white building behind Santa Lucia and whether its windows would have had a view of Paul's dorm window. Camp said he cannot recall if that building even existed in 1996, but it appeared today to be some sort of administrative building. On redirect, Pavrel pointed out that an administrative building on a university campus would be closed on weekends. Sanger objected, but Judge O'Keefe told him he could cross-examine instead. Sanger asked, quote, On campus, there's often staff and other people in admin buildings on weekends, right? Camp responded, Probably not over a holiday weekend. Sanger asked, quote, Well, they could be, right? Camp answered, I think people prefer to be off on a holiday weekend. Camp was excused at 4.01 p.m., and Pavrel informed the court that the trial was now running ahead of schedule. Week 5 began on Monday, August 15th, with DA investigator J.T. Camp being called back to the stand. In photos, Camp identified the interior and exterior of Santa Lucia Hall, the locations of the bathrooms, and the common areas. He then identified the same points in Mir Hall. On cross-exam, defense attorney Robert Sanger asked Camp to walk through all of the changes to the dorms since 1996. Camp said the common areas used to have big screen TVs and the lobby area used to have payphones, but that the buildings were virtually identical. Pavrel then called Adela Morris to the stand. Morris is a professional dog handler who has specialized in human remains detection since 1986, working for the California Rescue Dog Association, or CARTA, as well as founding the Institute of Canine Forensics. In that time, she's trained and certified six human remains detection dogs and is currently training her seventh. Morris said that in that time, she's also raised several dogs who seem to be more interested in hunting critters than detecting human remains, and those dogs were discontinued and not certified for human remains detection. Morris said that dogs are trained four days a week for four to six hours per day in small groups. Trainers set up problems for each other and blind tests. Training scenarios take place in old buildings, wilderness, and real waterways to train the dogs for different variables. Morris said real human remains are used when training the dogs, including bones, teeth, and tissue. Negatives that are used to train dogs on what not to alert on are semen, baby diapers, animal products, used Kleenex, live human scents, and beef. Dogs are not rewarded for finding negatives. Morris said if a dog alerts on a negative item during a CARTA certification test, they immediately fail. Dogs can retake the test later once their handler corrects their mistakes. Morris said she also trains her dogs to alert on surfaces where blood was located, but has since been disinfected with cleaning products. In her time as a handler, Morris estimated she's done over 300 law enforcement type searches and for the last 15 years has specialized in human burials. Her second dog, a red border collie named Choya, 
was certified in advanced cadaver search in 1995 and worked until 2000. During her career, Choya made several finds, including a deceased kidnap victim, a 10-year-old homicide victim, victims of a chemical plant explosion, and victims of a plane crash. Morris says Choya had to retest every year to remain certified and never fail the certification test. On June 29, 1996, Morris was dispatched to Cal Poly from the San Francisco Bay Area. When she arrived at Cal Poly, Morris said her first assignment was to search a reservoir away from campus. She brought Choya and her husband's certified border collie, Cirque. After searching the reservoir area, Morris was then assigned to search Santa Lucia Hall. As part of CARTA's blind search procedures, handlers were given no information about search locations or their reasons for being assigned to them. Morris said she opened the southwest door of Santa Lucia Hall and ordered Choya to find human remains with the command, Muerto. Morris stayed at the entrance. Inside Santa Lucia, Morris said Choya ran down the hallway and, quote, immediately made a U-turn and started concentrating on some of the doors. Starting at full speed, Choya then became very methodical and slow, sniffing carefully around the cracks of doors and door handles. Each dog is trained with a unique way to alert their handler. Choya was trained to jump up on Morris and then lead her to the target scent. After sniffing out a number of doors, Choya ran to Morris and jumped on her hip before leading her to the door of room 128, scratching at it. Morris testified that she told law enforcement Choya wanted to be let inside room 128, and the door was unlocked and opened. Morris again gave Choya her command and said the dog was extremely focused and went to the left side of the room. Quote, she was literally vacuuming up the scent. It tells me that my dog, A, has her target odor, and B, she was trained to find the strongest scent source if possible. She almost immediately came back to me, jumped on me, and continued to show me the left side of the room. Morris said Choya was primarily interested in the bed. Quote, I would say at least a dozen times she showed me that bed. She was very enthusiastic. Morris said Choya never settled on one specific spot on the bed, but alerted on the whole bed in general. Choya also showed an interest in the desk area on the left side of the room. Morris said her second dog, Cirque, remained in her vehicle while Choya searched Santa Lucia Hall. After Choya's alert, Morris retrieved Cirque from the car to search the dorm, while an officer restrained Choya. Cirque was let loose in Santa Lucia Hall, and also made a U-turn in front of the door of room 128. Inside of the room, Cirque immediately alerted to the bed on the left side. Morris said Choya was then taken to Mirror Hall, but did not show interest in any of the rooms there. When she returned to Santa Lucia Hall, Paul's mattress had been removed, but Choya continued to alert on the empty bed frame. On cross-exam, Sanger emphasized that Carta is a private organization and Morris was an unpaid volunteer. Sanger also focused heavily 
On a letter Morris wrote to another human remains detection dog expert named Andy Rebman following the Cal Poly search, Morris said she sought Rebman's advice because investigators asked her what substances they should look for when evaluating the mattress. Morris confirmed that her dogs also searched Susan Flores's home in 1997, though she didn't know at that time whose home it was. During that search, she said her dogs showed interest in an area of the backyard where trash cans had been stored, but did not give a full alert. She also returned to Cal Poly with her dogs in 1998 and 1999 to search the Performing Arts Center and an admin building, but her dogs did not alert on those occasions. Sanger asked Morris if it was important to avoid bias in writing reports. Morris responded that the way she writes her reports is more factual. Quote, I did this, the dog did this, it's not my opinion. Cross-examination of Morris continued into Tuesday morning, when an alternate from Paul's jury was excused from the case. Paul is down from eight alternates to four, while Ruben's jury is down to three. The first portion of the day focused on the idea of residual scents and volatile organic compounds and how long they're detectable by dogs. Morris said something has to be present in order for a dog to alert to a scent, but said there's no clear scientific answer as to what that is, explaining, my dog found the scent that she was trained to locate. Defense attorney Harold Misick asked if a dog's alert is subject to interpretation by their handler. Morris answered, quote, I specialize in reading my dog's behavior. I've trained them for a specific scent and I recognize when they have a change of behavior when they find that scent. Morris also said she never asked whose dorm room it was, and allowed Choya to direct the search. Misik asked Morris how she rewarded Choya after this search. Morris answered, I did not reward her. We do not reward them unless they find a dead body. Misik then went through Morris's CV, asking, quote, you didn't find that body, you didn't find that body, you didn't find that body, you listed all these cases, but they're unsuccessful cases. Pavrel objected, but Misik responded that he was finished with his questions. On redirect, Pavrel asked Morris to clarify whether her dogs would alert on tri-tip, a question that Sanger and Misik have brought up on several occasions, alluding to Paul's job at the campus grocery store as well as the mini-fridge in his dorm room. Morris said that beef is a negative her dogs are specifically trained on and would not trigger an alert. Quote, my dog would probably try to eat it, though. Sanger returned to the letter Morris wrote to cadaver dog expert Andy Rebman, asking, quote, after this search, you wrote a note to your friend Andy Rebman. Morris responded, Andy is not my friend. He's an expert in this field. Sanger also alleged that Morris was friendly with other members of CARTA. Quote, some of your dog certifications were given by your friends at CARTA. Morris responded, we were members of the same professional organization. We did not have dinner together. A juror submitted a question for Morris. Has any research been published since 1996 
that would change your opinion about Choya's alert. Morris said nothing she has read has changed her mind. Morris was excused just before 2 p.m., and Pavrel called Wayne Barons to the stand. Barons has been a certified dog handler for 31 years and was also present for the June 29, 1996 search at Cal Poly with his dog Sierra, a yellow Labrador, who was trained for wilderness and cadaver searches. Barons and Morris carpooled the Cal Poly together, where he was first assigned a two to three block area west of the dorms. Barron said once Sierra got to the perimeter of the dorms, she locked onto a scent, putting her paws up on a window on the first floor of Santa Lucia Hall. Because of strong crosswinds that day, Barron said the source of the scent seemed to be coming from inside the building and asked to be let inside. Once in, Sierra quickly alerted to the door of room 128. Barron said he had no prior knowledge of whose dorm room this was. Once the room was opened, Barron said, quote, She went to the left side of the room and ran back to me and alerted. She had a clear and unambiguous signal. Barron said Sierra put both of her paws up and alerted on the mattress several times. Barron's then suggested bringing in other dogs to confirm. Barron said that before the Cal Poly search, Sierra had been on 50-plus searches, and while no human remains were found in Santa Lucia Hall, quote, I can only tell you, based on my 30 years of experience, what I think the dog is responding to. Barron's was excused at 4.20 p.m. Judge O'Keefe announced that the rest of week five was going to be dark, and the trial was now scheduled to resume on August 24th. No explanation was given for the delay. Okay, now that we've listened to episode 6, when people listen to us week 6, week 4 and 5, we're going to listen to episode 6, people versus 4 is week 6. If you hear crumbling in the background, that's just me eating, eating something. Okay, sorry for the noise background. <laughs> I barely ate. But, um, enjoy the song too, because I'm listening in, but, um, I'm listening in while you guys, when you guys are listening to this too. So, it's week six, and Chris, as we all know and love, um, recaps the week of August 22nd in the courthouse. Not in the courthouse, but from the courthouse. Enjoy. To a special bonus series of the Your Own Backyard podcast titled People vs. Flores, a weekly recap of the murder trial of Paul and Ruben Flores. Since filming and audio recording aren't currently allowed inside the courtroom, these episodes will recount handwritten notes taken by host Chris Lambert, breaking from our typical documentary format in an effort to get updates out as regularly and succinctly as possible. These recaps will likely contain subject matter that may be graphic and disturbing to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. 
Week 6 started on Wednesday, August 24th, after two previously scheduled dark days. Just after 9 a.m., Deputy DA Christopher Pavrell called Rhonda Doe to the stand. Rhonda testified that on January 12, 2008, she was hanging out with three of her friends and bandmates at the Thirsty Club Bar in Redondo Beach. Around closing time, Rhonda said they were standing in the parking lot when a man she later learned to be Paul Flores rode up on his bicycle. Her friends invited Paul to hang out with them at her house since the bar was now closed, but Paul kept saying he needed to go back to his house first to do something and eventually asked Rhonda to walk with him. Rhonda said she agreed and walked for 10 to 15 minutes from the Thirsty Club to Paul's house on 170th Street in Lawndale. Rhonda said that by the time they started walking, she had sobered up and no longer felt intoxicated. She testified that she was fully alert by the time they reached Paul's steep driveway, which she recalled vividly. The house Paul was renting at that time was actually a back house, behind the main house, which sat in the front of the property. From the front sidewalk to Paul's front door, the driveway measures about 110 feet and slopes downhill. Rhonda testified that once they were inside the house, Paul offered her a glass of water, which she accepted. Paul went into the kitchen, where she couldn't see him, and brought out a glass of water. While she drank the water, Rhonda said Paul was doing something in the kitchen for a while, before he asked if she wanted a tour of his house. Rhonda testified, quote, I remember going into his bedroom, and I honestly do not remember much after that. The following account is graphic in detail. Rhonda testified that she lost consciousness, and when she came to, she was in Paul's bed, lying on her back, with Paul naked on top of her. Pavrel asked, was this with your consent? Rhonda answered, quote, no, I don't even remember how we got to that point. She said she came in and out of consciousness a few times. Quote, one time, Paul was asking me what his name was. I couldn't remember it, and he seemed pretty satisfied with that. She said she came to another time, to Paul putting a ball gag in her mouth, red with black straps, which he said was so they wouldn't wake up his roommate. At this point, she said Paul was having anal sex with her, which she never would have consented to. The next time she came to, she remembers being curled up next to Paul's bed, crying. She said the next thing she remembers is Paul driving her home. Rhonda said that for the next two days, she was sore and bleeding. Pavrel asked Rhonda if there was a clear line as to when she started going in and out of consciousness. Rhonda answered, when we were in his bedroom. Rhonda testified that she didn't report the rape because she was confused at the time and remembered so little of the night. Quote, I also knew that rape cases rarely get tried. There seemed to be no point. Last year, while scrolling through her newsfeed, Rhonda said she saw a photo of Paul Flores following his arrest and immediately recognized him. Quote, I couldn't breathe. I couldn't believe it was the same person. Rhonda said she experienced a panic attack 
and checked to see if Paul Flores had ever lived in the Lawndale area before finally deciding to contact law enforcement. In May of 2021, investigators showed Rhonda a photo lineup of six similar-looking men, and Rhonda identified number four as her rapist. Photo number four was a booking photo of Paul Flores. Pavrel asked Rhonda her degree of certainty as she looked at Paul Flores sitting in front of her in the courtroom that he was the man who raped her. Rhonda answered, quote, I'm certain. There's something in his eyes that is ingrained. That's something I did not forget. I'm going to pause this for a minute. I want you guys to go back to the episode. Um, if I'm not mistaken, one of the episodes, um, either one of the parts that, um, because one of the parts that I did, um, that he was talking about, um, Paul Flores's sexcapades, and I say sexcapades, because they are sexcapades, and he is a predator, and he did this to several girls, and I feel bad for this girl, because he has done this before. He has done this before. <clears throat> it sickens me to my stomach that he has done this to women multiple times, and he has gone away with it, and it's just sad that these women do not report it because... Again, it's a he said, she said thing because um, women do come forward to a certain extent saying I was raped, but then they're never believed. Because the men say, I didn't do anything. I didn't do that to her. I don't know her. Why would I do that to her? You know? And it kind of like defeats the purpose of like coming forward. Then again, Nowadays, once you are raped, you get a rape kit, and the rape kit has the has semen, because most men that rape women leave semen these days, so they'll test it. They'll test the semen, so, and once they test the semen, they figure out what, then whose DNA is who. And, um, I just feel that this woman has had it tough because if she was bleeding that means either he did it hard or it was her first time and that she was a virgin and it doesn't even though it doesn't matter it just feels like it was her first time because if she was bleeding in both areas I feel bad regardless and again if you hardly know the man, you just only know his name and you've hung out with him a few times, especially if it's Paul Flores and you and he think it's, he's weird and, and other stuff, <clears throat> then what? And if he's offering you a drink, like water or something, I would not drink it. I would just drink my saliva. I don't care if I die of thirst. I am not drinking anything if I were her. But I understand where he's coming from. Like, probably she got a good vibe from him. Like, maybe he's a nice guy, this, this, and that, and maybe that's why she took the water and didn't think anything of it. But that's what happens to us women. We get taken advantage of, and 
no, I wouldn't say mutilated. Mutilated is not a good word. Um, violated in a way that you don't like, and circumstances are circumstances, you know? It is what it is. I feel bad. On cross-examination, defense attorney Robert Sanger quickly honed in on the fact that Rhonda had previously lived in a house in Grover Beach for a period of time in 1996. That house, he pointed out, publishing a map on the courtroom projector, was 3.2 miles away from the village of Arroyo Grande, where a Kristen Smart billboard is located in front of the office of Smart family attorney James Murphy. Rhonda said she couldn't recall ever visiting the village or seeing the billboard. Rhonda testified that she attended Cal Poly in the fall of 1995, but dropped out in 1996. She said she was aware of Kristen Smart's disappearance at some point, but never heard about or saw on the news any discussion of a person of interest in the case and was not familiar with Paul Flores. Sanger asked Rhonda about the night she was raped and whether she remembered Paul Flores's dogs barking to greet her at the gate. Rhonda said she didn't remember that, and Sanger responded, quote, You don't recall a lot about that night. Sanger asked Rhonda if she remembered the route that she and this other person walked to get to his house that night from the Thirsty Club. Rhonda said they crossed Inglewood Avenue and then crossed over train tracks. The house, she recalled, was near the tracks. Google Maps shows the walk from the Thirsty Club to Paul Flores' former address in Lawndale is six-tenths of a mile and crosses both Inglewood Avenue and railroad tracks. Those tracks are about 900 feet from the house. Sanger then stated, You said Paul Flores asked you during sex what his name was and you didn't know. But you knew his name. Rhonda answered, quote, I did, but at that time I was unable to recall it. It's very confusing waking up with someone on top of you. I didn't know what was happening. Sanger then asked Rhonda if Paul had come to visit her after this incident and tried to call her on the phone, seeming to imply that Paul may have been interested in continuing a relationship beyond this encounter. The interesting thing about this line of questioning is that it seems to abandon Sanger's prior suggestion that Rhonda was mistaken about her rapist's identity. Just minutes before this, Sanger referred to Rhonda's rapist repeatedly as this person or the other person involved. Here, Sanger seems to suggest that Paul Flores attempted to continue a relationship with Rhonda after that night even though Paul may not be the person who raped her. A juror submitted a question for Rhonda. Do you recall any conversation on the walk to his house? Rhonda answered, We briefly talked about sports. I'm not really into sports. I told him I was going to a Lakers game that weekend. I remember thinking we didn't have much in common. The juror submitted another question. What was his demeanor during the walk? Rhonda answered, he was acting normal, being polite, nothing that stood out at all. Sanger asked Rhonda, quote, you said he came to the bar on a bicycle. Did he ride his bike to the house? Rhonda said, quote, he tried to get me to get on it, but I told him to stop. 
then he walked it the rest of the way. Sanger asked Rhonda what kind of bicycle it was. Rhonda responded, quote, not a mountain bike or anything. I would call it like a BMX bike. At this, Paul Flores began to shake his head in the courtroom for the first time during Rhonda's testimony. Rhonda was excused at 10.55 a.m., and Pavrel called DA investigator J.T. Camp to the stand. Camp testified that he visited Paul Flores's former home in Lawndale last year and took photos of the long, steep driveway and the main house in front. When he showed those photos to Rhonda, she identified it as the home she was taken to, saying, quote, that's exactly it. On cross-exam, Sanger asked Camp, quote, she said that house was near the railroad tracks. She didn't say she crossed over the railroad tracks, did she? Camp looked confused, looking up at the map and back at Sanger. Quote, I believe she did say that they crossed over railroad tracks, and that house is near the tracks. Sanger also asked Camp how he chose the five other subjects who were shown to Rhonda in the photo lineup. Camp said all five subjects were in a similar age range and around the same height and weight as Paul Flores. Sanger asked, quote, who looked the most like Paul Flores in that lineup? Paul Flores? Camp looked like he was trying to solve a math problem in his head before answering, of course. Camp was also asked about various routes to get to Mir Hall from the intersection of Grand and Perimeter, which he measured with a rolling tape last month. On cross-exam, Sanger asked, did you measure how far it would have been for Kristen Smart to get to her room, look through the window to see a man in that room, and then walk to Felipe's room? Camp said no. Defense attorney Harold Misick had no questions for Rhonda or investigator Camp. After a 20-minute break, Camp was excused, and Pavrel said he had no scheduled witnesses for the remainder of the day, so the proceeding was adjourned two hours early. Judge O'Keefe informed the juries that the trial was still moving ahead of schedule. On Thursday morning, Deputy DA Christopher Pavrel called Gail LaRoque to the stand at 10.46 a.m. LaRoque was a certified human remains detection dog handler from 1994 through 2001. Her boxer, Tori, was certified by CARTA, the California Rescue Dog Association, for wilderness searches, urban search and rescue, water searches, disaster searches, evidence searches, and advanced human remains detection. Defense attorney Robert Sanger objected to more than one photo of Tori being shown to the jury, stating that it was cumulative and an undue consumption of court time. His objection was overruled. Pavrel published a photo of Tori wearing a type of vest called a shabrack, which LaRoque explained indicates to the dogs that they're working while wearing it. LaRoque walked through the certification process for CARTA, which requires a dog to locate pieces of human tissue, bone, blood, or the clothing of a deceased person, which are hidden in places that are not immediately visible. During these certification tests, LaRoque explained that dogs are not allowed to make any false alerts. Quote, it's 100% or you fail. 
Dogs and handlers were also retested on an annual basis and would lose their certification if they ever failed a test. LaRoque said Tori never failed a certification test. Carta handlers would receive human bones, teeth, blood, or tissue from a medical examiner's office, as well as clothing that had been worn by a person at the time that they died. Trainers also used other animal remains, like roadkill or cremains, to teach their dogs what not to alert on. This assured that the dogs could differentiate between the scent of human decomposition and animal decomposition. LaRoque said that on some occasions, Carta handlers were given pieces of sterile gauze that had been placed on the chests of deceased people while they were being driven to the morgue. Dogs would alert to the scent of human remains on the gauze from only the prolonged contact. Tori wore a bringsel when she was searching for human remains, a cigar-shaped piece of leather attached to her collar ring. Tori would alert that she had located her target scent by biting the bringsel and returning to LaRoque with it still in her mouth. On June 29, 1996, LaRoque was dispatched to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. At 1.30 p.m., she was asked to bring Tori to Santa Lucia Hall. She was not told that Wayne Barron's and Adela Morris's three dogs had already alerted inside. Quote, when we work a search for human remains, we request from an agency that they tell us almost nothing. We do not watch the other trainers or their dogs work. The only thing I was told was that I was looking for cadaver scent. LaRoque said that by the time she arrived at Santa Lucia Hall, Tori was showing signs of heat exhaustion. LaRoque took Tori into a shower to wet her down until she stopped panting. They then returned to the front entrance of the building, where Tori's shabrack and bringsel were put on her. LaRoque described this process as proofing. After dressing Tori in her shabrack and bringsel, LaRoque would give her the command to let her know she was on a human remains search. Tori's command for this was search bones. Tori would bite her bringsel and sit to indicate that she knew that she was working and that she was searching specifically for human remains scent. After this proofing, Tori was let off her leash and again given the command, search bones. LaRoque explained, quote, she ran down the first floor hallway and she did what I call a fish hook. Her head went up. She spun around and ran to one of the doors, scratched at it, then bit her bringsel and brought it to me. That meant she had detected the scent of human remains. I was still at the far end of the hall. I asked the detectives to please open that door. They opened it, and I re-gave her the command, search bones. She went into the room. Her head went up, and she smelled the air. LaRoque said the mattress on the left side of the room was not on the bed frame, which we know from previous testimony had been removed by San Luis Obispo Sheriff's Deputy Rick Newfeld. So Tori first showed interest in the mattress on the right side of the room. After running her nose around the bed on the right, Tori bit her bringsel and brought it to LaRoque. LaRoque explained that because she is trained to read her dog's body language, she could see that Tori had not located a primary scent source, so she instructed her to go on, and Tori returned to the room, circling the perimeter and checking the closets. 
LaRoque testified, When she got to the left far corner, she started to whine. This indicated to me that she had her scent and was very excited. She smelled the carpet. She scratched at the carpet. Then she brought me her bringsel. LaRoque said there was also a small gray trash can in the back left corner of the room, which Tori picked up and brought directly to her. Because Tori had been given the command to find human remains, LaRoque said her alerts indicated that she had located the specific scent of human remains on that trash can. LaRoque said she asked the detectives watching to take the trash can out of the room so Tori could continue to work. The bed frame on the left, where the mattress had been removed, continued to be of interest to Tori. LaRoque said, quote, she ran her nose around it over and over, very frustrated. My opinion was that there was a strong scent cloud of human remains around that bed. LaRoque said she believes the primary source of human remains scent was the bed frame, as well as the wastebasket and the back left corner of the room. LaRoque said after Tori finished searching the room, detectives placed three identical wastebaskets spaced out in the hallway. Tori smelled each one and then picked up the one on the right. Tori then bit her bringsel and brought it back to LaRoque, indicating another full alert. Detectives later told LaRoque that the can on the right was the one Tori had previously alerted to in room 128. LaRoque said that because Tori had alerted on the same garbage can twice, her interpretation was that there was, quote, deceased human scent on that garbage can. LaRoque said she asked Tori to search the Santa Lucia hallway again, and Tori stood on her hind legs, smelling the door directly across the hallway from room 128, but did not alert. She described this behavior as, quote, searching for the boundaries of that scent bubble. Sanger objected that there was no such thing as a scent bubble, but Judge O'Keefe overruled him. As with the previous dog handlers, Sanger's cross-examination focused on LaRoque's work as a volunteer, as well as the other members of CARTA and their working relationship to each other, which Sanger previously referred to as their little club. Sanger asked, quote, When your dog is searching, you're looking for actual evidence, right? LaRoque answered, I'm looking for my dog to indicate that she smells human remains. Sanger asked LaRoque if she was aware that dogs can have false positives. LaRoque answered, quote, You asked me that at the pretrial, and I've thought about that a lot since. I personally have never had that experience. Maybe you can define for me what the term false positive means to you. Sanger responded, a false positive would be a dog alerting to human remains where there are no human remains. Does that make sense? LaRoque answered, no. Sanger asked LaRoque if her dog was friends with Adela Morris's dogs. Pavrel responded, quote, objection. Dogs have friends? The jurors laughed, as did the judge, prompting Sanger to rephrase the question. They got along, yes? Sanger then asked, you don't know the chemical compounds that dogs are alerting to, do you? LaRoque said no, and after a brief pause added, nor do I know the chemical compounds that make up a chocolate cake, but I know one when I see one. Several jurors laughed again, but this time Sanger shouted back, 
Did you see a chocolate cake, ma'am? Do you think this is funny? This is a murder trial. Defense attorney Harold Misick cross-examined LaRoque, asking, Would you agree that a dog is only as good as his handler? LaRoque answered, No, I would not agree. Explaining that some dogs have a knack for detection work, while others are easily distracted and difficult to train. Misick asked if handlers always use a tangible item when training the dogs. LaRoque said trainers would often bury an item and then remove it entirely before letting the dog search. Dogs would alert on the spot where the item had been, even though it was no longer there. Misick asked if Tori might have been interested in other smells in the trash can. LaRoque responded, interested? Yes. Misick asked, enough to alert and bring it to you? LaRoque answered, quote, only if it contained the scent of human remains. Misick asked if Tori ever alerted on something that wasn't there. LaRoque said she didn't recall Tori ever alerting falsely. Misick asked, quote, you believe your dog is infallible? LaRoque answered, not infallible, just honest. Regarding the search of Paul's room, Misick asked, you said your dog showed frustration? Sanger objected that there was no basis for the question, and Misick withdrew it, asking instead, how long do you believe volatile organic compounds remain in the atmosphere? Sanger objected again that there was no foundation, and Judge O'Keefe sustained. Misick asked, quote, could your dog differentiate between human blood and menstrual blood? LaRoque said she never observed Tori to alert on menstrual blood. After a brief sidebar, LaRoque was excused at 4 p.m. To help me better understand the testimony of the three dog handlers we've heard from so far, I reached out to a dog trainer who specializes in scent work, who's been following the trial updates, to ask about how a dog's nose works and what handlers are looking for when their dogs are searching for a scent. My name's Becky Pasika. I'm a certified dog trainer and I'm a certified nosework instructor. So my expertise is in scent work and scent detection since 2015. So first of all, I do want to caveat, I'm not a cadaver dog handler. My expertise is in scent detection. I have hundreds and hundreds of hours of observing dog behavior and nose work searches. So I think it will be helpful to start with some fun facts about the dog's nose, because then what the dogs are doing in the searches will make a lot more sense. Dogs have between 100 million on the very low end and 300 million scent receptors in their nasal cavity. We have around 6 million. So the dog's brain the part that's allocated to scenting and scent detection is 40 times more than ours. So just to put in perspective, you know, the elevator analogy of perfume, it's not wrong if you don't know how capable a dog's nose is because you're judging it based on our nose and we can't smell it, but a dog absolutely can. These are cadaver dogs specifically, but there's scent dogs that can find dead bodies 30 feet underwater. So the dog's nose is insanely capable. The likelihood that three dogs separately doing blind searches all false alerted on the exact same things in the exact same corner of the room, I think I'm not a statistics expert, but statistically is probably pretty low. So the fish hook that they describe, basically every odor particle has one of the 
handlers called it a scent bubble and scent cone I think is more common now, but it's the same concept. Basically it's just the odor, how it's emanating out kind of a good visual, sort of like the warmer, colder game. So what was happening is the dogs are running down the hallway. There's no odor. There's no odor. And then at that door, they hit odor. But as the dog is running, they run past it, say, shoot, that was what I was looking for. And also dogs can scent directionally left and right. And so they would be running and whatever, it's the left side of the room or something, do that fish hook, that U-turn, that means they hit the edge of odor. So we call that a change of behavior. It's really clear that they are, are changing their path and then going to whichever direction they're finding the source of odor. The handler that had the boxer that spoke last week, she mentioned even that then her dog went and checked the room across the hall you know, gave it a quick sniff and then came back to where they were catching odor. So that's sort of one edge of the scent bubble and then went back to where they're finding the greatest concentration. For a cadaver, you know, for a body, there's skin cells that a body, you know, we are shedding skin cells every moment, you know, hair particles. So it's absolutely valid that it didn't lead to any physical particle that we could see, but I don't know. Nobody did, you know, a really fine sweep of any skin cells. You know, given how strong a dog's nose is, there's absolutely stuff left behind that if people weren't looking for that, then it would have been easily missed. You know, even it could have been a hair on the floor that was underneath the edge of the bed or something like that. Those are the things that the dogs could be alerting on that visually are, you know, somebody missed. And then also the the gas that a dead body puts off. Again, the dog's nose is just so much stronger than ours. So all of that lingers, even if we're not still there. And then Adela had mentioned that they train the dogs for if it's been cleaned, you know, so if the room was cleaned, then how well, and again, where, you know, where there's little particles, skin cells and stuff like that, that were left at the edge. That's probably what the dogs were alerting to based on what it sounds like the areas of the room that they consistently alerted to. So I think one thing that's important to think about is the dogs didn't, they don't have any expectation of going in there and finding an alert. Like, you know, they would have done searches where they were asked to search and didn't come up with anything. So the dogs, they're just going to do the search. And if they find odor, then they're going to tell their handler about it. And then if not, then they're going to leave. And then their handlers would set up a recovery search or, you know, something like that for them. But again, it's not, the odor is not vaporized into the air. And I mean, if you're just judging based on the human nose, I can see how people think that. But there was a study done in Australia where blood was put on a Q-tip and was washed five times. And then it was presented to the cadaver dogs and they still alerted on it. That just gives a little bit of a perspective of like odor can have been cleaned. It can be sitting out for ages. Sometimes, you know, in training, we'll age a hide. We'll leave it outside in the elements. You know, it rains or it's baking in the sun. We absolutely can't smell it. And then absolutely the dog can still find it. It's teamwork. You're kind of there, but it's totally the dog is in charge. They're the ones smelling. They're honest. They have no expectation. You know, they're not trying to fool you if you've done your training well, which to get certified at that level. The standard of training is so high 
And I think all of the handlers have done such a good job standing by their training and, and having all the things, you know, Adela talked about all the things that they've trained the dogs against. They've, they've put out blood in the environment and they put out semen and whatever out, you know, if it's a cadaver dog, they would have live, you know, skin cells or whatever so that the dogs learn. I'm only alerting for the cadaver smell, not all these other things that are present in the environment, which was brought up in the case. All of the dogs had really clear alerts, and it's something that when you don't know much about it, it looks like nothing much is happening, or all of the questions that the defense have, have asked are pretty n- normal questions until you learn more and then you you know have understanding of how capable the dogs are. Working detection dogs are trained to such a high level because there is going to be that criticism, so they have to be they have to have really strict training to fall back on to say we we proof the dog about you know xyz um they've already been exposed to this this is their alert every single time it's very clear so that also people watching that don't know you know if they they do a sit or a down or whatever you know they're really clear change of behavior so people that don't know what they're looking at can see and tell that the dog did something different First of all, once you're at that level where you have a certified cadaver dog, you know all the nuances of your dog. I mean, even pet dog owners, you know, if your dog is standing by the back door giving you a hard stare, you can infer that they have they want to go outside versus they're staring at a squirrel outside or, or you know, begging at the table or something. So for a working dog, first of all, they're looking at the whole picture. So they see the change of behavior. They see the intention the dog's trying to get somewhere as the dog is really working it's it's very fluid because they're kind of narrowing it down again sort of like that warmer colder game so the handler would be observing all of those little changes of the dog the head turn oh there they caught a little edge of it and then either a hard sniff on some spot or really kind of narrowing it down the more you watch it you even anybody would start to see oh there it is there's kind of the behavior change you're looking for but yeah, the alert is much more clear than, you know, if there was like tri tip juice on the uh, edge of the bed or something like that. They wouldn't give that, you know, running back, jumping on the handler or a sit or, you know, whatever their that dog's specific alert is. It's very, very different. And again, that would be something that is trained for. I think Adela mentioned it that they put out meat, they put out steak you know, all different kinds of things. And the dog doesn't give their clear, their alert saying, this is the thing I'm, I'm training for. I think people also forget that even in training, there's all kinds of smells in the environment at all times. So you have, we have no idea if we're setting out a training session where, you know, they do put out some cadaver odor. Maybe there was blood in the environment. Somebody walked past with a cut that, you know, they never knew. So the dogs from the get-go are trained to ignore so many distractions and then just find the thing that they're asked to find. Even yesterday in class, just with pet dogs, I have all the treats out right next to the search area and the dogs ignore the treats and choose to go find the thing that we're asking them to find. So dogs love to work. It's so so fulfilling for them. You know, they have this whole training history where they've been reinforced for only finding the thing. They've also been reinforced for not finding any odor and that's okay too. So, you know, there's no reason for me to think that they would suddenly alert on tri-tip residual tri-tip smell. And to that point, 
if they don't think cadaver odor lingers in the environment for very long, but they think tri-tip smell on his clothes lingers for a long time, those are contradictory. <laughs> Three separate dogs work totally independent of each other, all alert on the same things in the same areas. is very clear that there was cadaver odor in that environment. You know, he brought up that they're friends or something, but each dog individually would have no way of knowing exactly where in the room the prior dog alerted to. You know, they would be able to smell that there was a dog there or where the dog moved around, but not knowing that exactly on the edge of the bed is where the, the border collie made the choice and then the boxer made a different, you know, there's just, it's just so improbable. There's no way. To learn more about nose work training, and see some of the dogs in action. You can follow Becky on Instagram at Dogtastic Training. After the testimony of Gail O'Rourke, Deputy DA Christopher Pavrell called Angie to the stand. Angie dated Paul Flores from 2004 to 2006 and lived with him in Lawndale. At some point during that relationship, Angie said Paul took her to Arroyo Grande, where she met his mother, Susan Flores, her boyfriend, Mike McConville, and Paul's father, Ruben Flores. During their visit to Ruben's home, Angie said they walked through the house and out to the backyard through a sliding glass door. She described a slab of concrete and a wraparound porch or deck with white lattice underneath it. When she noticed a few avocado trees close to the deck, she attempted to approach one, when she said she was quickly redirected away from that area by Reuben and Paul and told to come back around the side of the house to the front yard. Angie said the mood quickly changed. She added that after this incident, she learned that Paul wasn't paying his own bills and that his parents had been paying them for him. Sanger objected, quote, Your Honor, I have a very specific motion. Judge O'Keefe asked for a sidebar. Pavrell then asked Angie to specify how the mood changed after she was redirected away from the avocado tree. Angie answered, quote, they did not want me there. Pavrell handed Angie a photo of Ruben Flores's yard and asked her to indicate the area where she came out of the house and the tree she was heading toward when she was redirected. Angie marked an avocado tree, which based on the preliminary hearing and pretrial testimony, sits directly in front of the portion of the deck where investigators found what they believe to be a human burial site in 2021. Angie was still on the stand at the end of Thursday and returned Friday morning. Deputy DA Christopher Pavrell reopened his direct examination, asking, what room was behind the sliding doors you came out? Angie said she believed it was a dining room. Pavrell asked Angie if she saw any dogs on the property. Angie said there were five dogs being kept under the deck. Pavrell asked if they were barking. Angie said she believes they were. On cross-exam, defense attorney Robert Sanger asked if the sliding glass door Angie circled on a photo could have been a room rented out to a tenant and not a dining room. Angie answered, quote, I just know that we came out a sliding glass door. Defense attorney Harold Misick asked, are you aware that the property had been an avocado grove? Angie said she was not aware. 
Misik asked Angie if she was dressed nice for a dinner party. Angie answered, quote, no, just normal. Misik asked if she could have been redirected because Ruben and Paul were afraid she would step in dog poop. Angie said she didn't know, but she didn't think that was their concern. Misik asked, quote, when you were walking towards the tree, did they say, let's go, we got to go to the dinner party? Angie said she couldn't remember what they were saying. They just wanted her to leave the area and go back to the front of the house. I'll note here that Angie never mentioned anything in her testimony about having plans to go to a dinner party. That idea was introduced by Misik. During the preliminary hearing, he asked Angie if she might have been wearing high heels that day and that Reuben and Paul could have redirected her so she wouldn't trip in the grass or get them dirty. Angie said she wasn't wearing high heels. On redirect, Pavrel asked, After this, were you ever invited back to the home of Ruben Flores? Angie said she wasn't. Pavrel asked what Ruben Flores's demeanor was following this incident. Angie answered, quote, He was rude. It didn't seem like he liked me. Angie was excused at 9.10 a.m. Judge O'Keefe informed the jurors that the attorneys needed to prepare for the next witness, so the court would be taking a 90-minute recess. Quote, the attorneys will all be working very hard to make this seamless. When we returned at 10.30 a.m., we were told that the attorneys had been unable to resolve the issue, so court was going to be dismissed for the rest of the day. Judge O'Keefe explained, quote, this is not going to delay anything. We are making good time. Sometimes things happen that are outside of our control. No further details were given. The trial is scheduled to resume on Monday, August 29th at 8.30 a.m. That was the end of People vs. Flores Week 6, which is Episode 6. Next time when we come back... I come back. Uh, we're going to listen to episode 7 and episode 8. People versus Flores week 7. Which that one is an hour and 20 minutes. And people versus Flores week 8. Which is 37 minutes. I hope you guys enjoy this. Speak to you guys in the next one.